Hello, I'm Rabbi Iggy, and welcome to Tattoos and Torah. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Tattoos and Torah. I'm Rabbi Iggy out of the Truva Center. Uh, thank you for joining us. We have a special guest today, uh, my dear, 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 dear friend, uh, the very impressive uh, Dr. Rachel Fish. Uh, <laughs> hello, Rachel. Hello, Iggy. <laughs> hello. Uh, for those of you who uh, do not know who Rachel is, she is the founding executive director of the new foundation to combat anti-Semitism, uh, right? She uh, is heading this foundation. Robert Kraft, uh, owner of the New England Patriots, uh, established this foundation to catalyze dynamic new solutions to stop the age-old hatred uh, advances by those who seek the elimination of Judaism, Judaism sorry, and the Jewish people uh, and the modern movement to destroy the world's only Jewish state. Um, right? The foundation focuses on positively impacting attitudes of young people and general people around the world, uh, leveraging social media to deliver educational campaign uh, and spur social action uh, by people of all backgrounds. Right? Um, you were a senior advisor to right, the resident scholar at the Jewish Israel Philanthropy at Paul Singer Foundation in New York City. Um, and you work with sort of people and grantees uh, really all over the world. Um, to really work around um, the, I guess, the advancement of the, I will call it the intelligent conversations about sort of uh, anti-Semitism, Judaism, the Jewish state, um, and modern life, right? I think that's, that's right. So, so yeah, and it's and it's very very exciting um, to to discuss this because, of course, we are in such a I mean, I think we've run out of words of describing what this age is, right? We call it like, it's crazy, but it's such a, we're living in a, what it feels like in a more polarizing world. Right. That's right. That's right. Uh, not only is that happening, I think in real life, but it's happening in the world of social media as well. So it just feels like you, people are coming into the conversations, Iggy, with definitive positions and they're not interested in actually engaging in a discussion. Yeah, I mean that's that I mean that's usually right when people sort of come into conversations not open. It's really not open to conversation. They just want to kind of grandstand, right? And so how do we how do we then either coax them into a real conversation um or or do we have to just stay away, right? I think that that for me, I guess that's the first question. There are stands right people who who have very different opinions than mine which i don't which i don't mind of course right i i invite in fact but what is the what is the tension what is the right tension between sort of those who are like i i don't know that i could ever really have a conversation with you therefore maybe i shouldn't versus is there a way to sort of invite conversation even people coming with like a really like specific stand about an issue yeah, I mean, look, you you know better than I do, but we come from a tradition and a heritage that really values um, argumentation, right? right? It really values um, engaging with diverse perspectives and hearing those diversity, those diverse positions, but at the same time, being open to understanding where people are coming from, even if it doesn't move you to change your own position. And that kind of argumentation is something that I think our tradition 
holds as a value. Um, you know, even just in the beginning, when you have Abraham questioning God, like, who am I? Am I the one to be able to do this? Right. We, that is part of what we read and what we see and what is a model for us as a people. And I think that a cannot be taken for granted. Not every tradition has that. Um, and B, I would say that if you take this beyond the conversation of Judaism, we are living in a society in which individuals really feel like they should be ending their sentences with exclamation points rather than question marks. Mm. And I would like to help move that conversation so that people are ending with question marks because I think it doesn't help us to end with exclamation points. I think also um, for those people who are sort of watching the conversation, if you always see people ending with exclamation points, you're going to be more fearful or have trepidation to engage in that conversation because you feel like either your position has to be formed or you have to have a definitive idea rather than saying, I understand where you're coming from, but I'm also curious about. And the other piece I would say is that we have, as a society, forgotten what it means to create brave spaces. And mm -hmm. I use that word explicitly or that phrase rather than safe spaces, knowing, of course, safe for people's physical safety. But, you know, if we aren't brave enough to share what we're thinking and feeling and experiencing, even if it is contrary to popular opinion, then we're engaged almost in a society that perpetuates doublethink which is what you see in societies that are totalitarian by nature, where you have to quietly be thinking one thing and not, you know, whisper to anyone, but publicly say something else. Hmm. That is, I love that. That is a very interesting thing, right? Because in, in, in recovery and in some spiritual work, right, that's description of a, what we call a split, right? Somebody who is one thing to one person and something to another, something that you think inside, but something that you do outside, right? Um, you know, yes, I might be sealing to fund my habit for heroin, but I'm, but I'm a good person and I'm trying to write to the do other thing, right? And, and how we try to um, eliminate that split for you to be able, but, but you're right, in order to do that, you have to be brave. And, and you have to also, right, be brave to what you said before, you have to be brave enough to say, I don't know, or, right, convince me, or talk to me, right? Because I think so much uh, in this society, in this sort of, uh, even sort of like I call it machismo society of like, you have to be certain, you have to know, right? Doubt question is seen as, you know, sort of uh, wishy-washy, right? There I say feminine, right? So like, it, it seems as sort of that sort of people look down at like, well, maybe, right? Rather than like, I don't know. And That's right. That's right. I, I think you're spot on. And I think uh, when you begin to question, it's assumed that you're weak. I mean, I mm -hmm. think that is the assumption or that you're uninformed. So why don't you have a quote unquote formed opinion? And, right. you know, I can't help but think, uh, you know, as a mother of, of little ones, you know, we don't ask them when they come home from school, you know, what did you learn today? We actually don't. We say, what questions did you ask? Mm -hmm. What was your kindness? You know, when was a moment in which you made a mistake? And that's what our approach is to the conversation, which I think, in, in at least our intention is that, and we're not always perfect at this, but obviously we want them to feel comfortable in all of those ways, failing, right. 
have a right. growth mindset, asking the questions and being curious and of course being kind um, because having them say, here's how I, how well I did and here's my grade and here's how successful I was actually is not going to help them in the world. Right. In fact, I think it will hinder them in the world, right? Because, um, right. So my kids are older, right. But, but I, we discovered early on that if we say, oh, you're so great or you're so amazing, whatever, you know, that, People who grow up like that tend to not engage in things that they think might not elicit that response from their parents. So they wouldn't try things that they don't think they would be great at. And therefore, you lose their curiosity and the bravery to just try. Right? That's exactly um, right. And we, had to, and we had to change our, our verbiage with the children, but also just our, even the way we think about it. Right. Because it's very rare. In fact, I don't remember any time when somebody came into a conversation saying, like, I actually don't know. Um, let's study together, right? People think like, well, I think that blah, blah, blah. And, and I think that's sort of what also a lot of the educational system around us constantly pushes, right? Think about this, right? What do you think about that? Right? Absolutely. Look, I, um, you know, when I was pursuing my doctorate, uh, you know, I would come to my advisors and say, I have no idea. Like I'm only getting myself in a situation in which the more I read and the more conversations I have, the more questions I have. And I'm not sure if that's what is supposed to be happening, but that's definitely what's happening. And they said, that's what you want. That's exactly what you want. And yes, it made the process challenging, really challenging, but you know, the way in which you then begin to create these layers and you can peel back layers is part of that process. But if you just come in and say, here's what I believe and here's what I know, I think you actually miss a huge part of the landscape that could have been open to you. Right. But then you have to, but you have to live in, in, in that vulnerability, right? You have to live in that, I don't know, which, which is hard, right? Because you want to know, right? I, I'm a person of, of ideas and words, right? So like, I like to know, Right. I've been told my whole life how intelligent I am since I was a kid. Right. That's part of my identity. What for good or for bad? I want to know. Living in like, well, I don't know, or there's more questions. What about this? I had to get used to, right? Because I I otherwise I sort of I want to go into this rabbit hole and I want to know everything there is to know about something. Yeah. But I so I completely hear you. And I would say that's where we have to be very careful not to conflate the I don't know with intelligence. Right. right? Meaning that actually opens up the conversation so you can learn more rather than assume that if you didn't ask that, you know everything there is to know about it. And right. listen, you and I see um, too many people don't do what's behind me and read these books, right? right? And all they do is pick up a phone right. and read the headings of whatever article they intend to read, but never actually make the 20 minutes to read. Right. And they're basing their positions, whether it's political, whether it's personal, whether it's religious or spiritual, communal, on bullet points, on you know superficiality for the most part. And that ultimately is going to hinder us as a people, not just, I'm not saying just Jews. I mean, as right. humans. Right. No, it's funny. I, I, I was just thinking about that the other day because uh, it was either medium or the time. I can't remember, but like there was an article and I noticed at the top of the article, it says how long the read is. Six minute read, 12 minutes read. I think it's medium. Right? Like, and part of me is like, ooh, that's actually really helpful. <laughs> like I know I know how to budget it. And part of me is like, what the fuck? I mean, like, what? No, like, hey, 
maybe I'm reading slower. Be, so, I, right, so here's another way for me to feel inadequate, right? It's supposed to be a six-minute read, but for me, it's a 12-minute read. What's wrong with me? Or thing like, just read because you want to read, not because you know that, like, there's a timer attached to it, right? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I noticed that as well, and I immediately did not like it. I really didn't because I was yeah. like that. Part of the pleasure of reading is getting lost in the process of reading. Right. And, uh, you know, not everything should be on a stop clock. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, although, right, to be fair, right, so like prior to, right, prior to technology, right, sort of like I remember asking in school, right, like, right, well, how many pages is the book? <laughs> like, I need to know. <laughs> That's right. right? That's so I think right. It's, a, it's a little equivalent. I need to know if this is like That's a, right. this is a weekend read or is this is like a Dostoevsky? Like, I don't even want to know. Right. I think. Right. But yeah. Um, so, so, you know, this, this is, this is fascinating in terms of, okay, let this, this information to be, to be learned. Right. But here, here you are, right. Sort of you're, you're the new executive director of this really cool and, and what seems to me really, really important foundation. Right. Because now it's not just about knowledge, right? What we're trying to, what you're trying to combat is almost sentiments and emotions, right? So like prejudice, right? And it has nothing to do with facts, really, right? So like I think, right, in fact, the more facts you throw at people with, with prejudice and emotions, the more they, they buck, I think the study says, right? So that seems to be like, well, either part of me, either futile or, right, or incredibly futile, futile at worst, incredibly difficult at best. That's right. No, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, how we create um, longitudinal, right, long-term change in perceptions, behaviors, attitudes, and ultimately a culture is a serious question. You're talking about combating an age-old hatred, one of the oldest hatreds that has persisted and not only has persisted, but has mutated over time right. to make it more challenging to address. So how to do that is a real issue. And this is where it is very clear that just filling people's buckets with more information is actually not going to create the necessary change. So we've had to really step back and say, so how do you influence those things, behavior, perceptions, attitudes, and a culture. And first of all, I want to tell you, again, it's counter to everything that we do with technology and that it's not going to be in a month. It's not yeah. going to be with two Facebook posts. I mean, this right. is going to be a long-term project because this is something that truly exists and is, is very challenging. The second thing I would just add to that is our target audience are folks along a spectrum and I'll, I'll say it this way. When you said like, should we engage in the conversation? Is it worth talking to certain people? So we decided we are not focusing on the detractors. The people who are out there pushing hate, that's mm -hmm. not my audience. Hmm. God bless them. I hope one day they will be open to change, but I can't spend time on them because they are the ones ending with exclamation points and they have opinions that they're not willing to challenge. I'm also not focused on the folks at the other end of the spectrum who are already educated about, like you, you know these issues. Right. So I don't need to talk to you. It's great to be able to talk to you in this way, but I don't need right. to educate you about this. Right. So I'm focusing on the people in the middle, the people who truly don't know, but don't know how to say I don't know and don't know how to ask, 
non-Jews and Jews. And for that audience, the purpose is to slowly be able to sensitize them, raise awareness and educate them so that they understand that Jew hatred is another form of hatred that exists alongside all the other forms of hatred we know, right? Homophobia, Islamophobia, racism, all these other things. And if we silo it so that it's only this unique thing, which in some ways it is, but if we only silo it, then it's always deemed to be something that can't be in conversation with these other forms of hatred. And I'll tell you, you'll appreciate this. When we were doing the research to develop our strategy, we surveyed about 10,500 Americans between the ages of 13 to 35. So it's beyond a statistically representative sample. And when we asked a qualitative question of what is anti-Semitism, the majority said, don't know. Straight up, don't know. Wow. When we asked them also, you know, for those who were willing to try to like tease it out, they said the following. Well, I don't know what a Semite is, but I know that I'm anti-racism. I'm anti-homophobia. I'm anti-Islamophobia. So I must be an anti-Semite. And you were like, no, 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 no. You're an anti-anti-Semite. <laughs> so what that helped us understand was the lexicon, the terminology itself was highly problematic for an audience that we're just trying to reach because it has anti-Semitism has this pseudoscientific kind of feeling to it. And it sounds smart, but actually no one knows what we're talking about. So we started calling anti-Semitism Jew hatred. Right. Fascinatingly, when I say Jew hatred... To not to Jews, especially in that educated group, they hate the term. Yes, they hate I'm the term. Ha- I'm having a visceral reaction myself. Right? I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, don't use, don't say that. No, don't, don't, I don't like that. Can, and why can you find a different like word? It? Why? It's too on the nose. It's too on the nose. It's unnuanced. It's too on the nose. It hurts because. On one hand, I know exactly what you mean, but it's it's really uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's just too it's too simple. It's crass. Right? It's crass. Yeah. Right. When you hear it, you're like, oh, I don't, I don't want to hate Jews, even if you don't right. know exactly what a Jew is, because right. you're living in the middle of right. Utah. Right. You're like, because eh, like right, like right. like the kid, like right, like uh, hate is a strong word. Like right, Dad, I hate broccoli. Well, hate is a strong word for broccoli, right? But it's a little, it's a little bit like that, right? Sort of like yep. you, you, as soon as we say hate, um, right, or hatred, it feels very violent. That's right, and I completely understand the discomfort with it, and yet it's the term I want to use right now, mm-hmm. and it's the term I want to use particularly for the don't know audience. Right. It's not the term I would use if I were giving a lecture at a university. But when I'm creating content that needs to have that emotional piece, it hits a chord. So people have to respond. They can't ignore it the way they can anti-Semitism. Whereas Jew hatred says "Eh, something about that. I don't I don't want to be that. So so that is part of what we are trying to do. And I'll say the last thing in terms of the strategic sort of approach in developing content for us, it's really about humanizing Jews. You, I mean, you know where I grew up, right? <laughs> like, like, oh, Jew hatred and humanizing Jews. Yeah, they also wear pants. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> but for real, people don't know, right, right. especially, I mean, the world is not New York. The world is not right. Boston. Right. And 
Jews are often thought of in a very particular way, in a narrow way around religion, very often. And Judaism is thought in that way. And I have to tell you that, um, you know, when you talk about anti-Semitism with a lot of these folks in the middle of, of the spectrum of the don't knows, when you talk about anti-Semitism, they say, well, that's a thing of ancient history, right. the Holocaust. Yeah. And they put the Holocaust as ancient history, not recognizing it is not ancient. So all of these pieces are sort of informing how we go about this. Fascinating. No, I, 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 I totally... It's fascinating on multiple levels. One, because I, I love the facts of right, sort of this sort of trying to talk to people who are still talkable, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of thing. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think anti-Semitism, people think it is all the thing it is sort of like something doesn't relate to. Let me ask, so in terms of th- that, um, in terms of, of that question is, how do you find, do you find it related to like all the, uh, um, Right, so like the racism, anti-Semitism, like sort of like, right? There is, I think, there's a, there is a definitely a tension between, especially now with Black Lives Movement, right? So sort of like with Black Lives Matter, right? And sort of this, uh, I would say, intellectual movement of tying in most oppressive uh, movements uh, around the world to this sort of like global global thing, right? So that sort of that somehow, right? both anti-Semitism is related to racism, but also um, sort of like anti-Palestinian sentiments or anti-Israeli sentiments or anti, right? So like South African sentiments, sort of like this sort of that, right? That that I would sort of like the apartheidized, like apartheidizing of, of the whole thing. How do you feel about sort of those sort of tension and relations? Yeah, I mean, look, I think this is a really hard part of the work. I mean, for those of us who have been involved in trying to build bridges between communities for a very long time, all different types of communities, and at different times, those communities being disenfranchised more than other parts of the community, um, we know that the key element in all of that work is relationship building. Mm -hmm. It really is the one-to-one, not to put it in sales terms, but retail engagement right? It's me reaching out to the person that I have built a substantive relationship with based upon substantive conversations and work in shared, you know, service, whether it was to their community, to my community, to larger, you know, human needs, food banks, right? Or school projects for disenfranchised populations, whatever it is. And that's where the really hard work is done. And if you don't do that work and you're not present to build those relationships and listen and start to understand and engage with people, there's no humanizing. There's only the other. And you tend to find groups or individuals will speak in generalizations about those communities. So first and foremost, I believe that that has to be part of the groundwork. And then secondly, I think that There has to be real education that has to be reciprocal. It has to be symmetrical. It can't be you are only there for the other and that other is not there for your own community. You have to be willing to share and vulnerable and you have to be willing to hear and listen and be empathetic and compassionate. And for me, those pieces all have to be part of the the equation. And I'll say in terms of then how that then plays out is that if it 
if you actually have su- substantive relationships, it has the ability over time to then be able to move into showing up for one another when communities are in need, right? So when there is a swastika, let's say, that's drawn, or when a massacre like what Pittsburgh happened, the horror of it, people are present from all different stripes and backgrounds because they did the hard work beforehand and they want to be there for their friends, their neighbors, their people. If you haven't done that hard work, very often showing up is disingenuous. Showing up isn't authentic. And people feel that. And people feel like, are you there for the reason that you should be here? Or are you there for your own political purpose? And I think, you know, community relations organizations, uh, communal nonprofit work um, recognizes this. And we, we are learning from that. And that's much of the space that I've been in, that you've been in for a very long time. I think the other piece is that specifically when it comes to Jews, and I might say something here a little controversial, but very often American Jews in particular, when they have shown up for that work, they have shown up out of a real Jewish value of tikkun olam, of this idea of repairing the world and the idea that you have to be present for the other. And very often when they show up in that way with all the best of intentions, they actually have sublimated their own particularism of Jewishness. And they aren't necessarily showing up with that operating system in mind as well to say, I'm doing this because it is inherently part of my Jewish identity. And it's not only for my community. And I need to understand how it reflects and and how I reflect on that engagement of both particularism for my own people and universalism for everyone else. And that is should be, in my mind, a very healthy tension between those two those two positions. And very often for American Jews, that particularism has fallen way down and the universalism of tikkun olam has been elevated to the point of almost becoming, um, in some ways, in some ways, a little bit of a joke, right? Right. Because it's only for the other always. And they're tikkunistas, right? They're only (laughs) for everyone else forgetting who their own people are. So, so there is a piece of that as well, that, that, that's hard because to be able to show up with your own identity and feel good about your own identity requires you to actually know something about your identity. So do you think, and I was just thinking that, do you think it's because of shame? You know, do you, I, th- I often feel like sometimes like, I don't know enough. I can't speak for Judaism. I can't speak for Jewish. Like I'm, I'm a bad Jew. I hear this all the time, right? Sort of like, right, I don't know how to read Hebrew. I don't know how to pray, whatever, all these things, right? That we judge ourselves. So we much rather identify with the universal um, value, right? So like tikkun olam sounds good. It's good. It's altruistic. It makes me feel good. It's good for the world. Therefore, things. And, and if I... If I bring it through my Jewish identity, I have to deal with all the other parts of my Jewish identity. And people would just feel like, hey, I don't know. I wasn't educated. I don't know if I drink it myself. And also, um, I don't know what, I don't want to make this about me, right? I'm just a good That's person. Right. Right? That's right. And 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 that and by then selling themselves short and perhaps even a little bit of self-hate of this Jew hatred. Yeah, look, right? I, I definitely think there's a piece of feeling illiterate about one's own identity. I'll often see also that um, American Jews don't feel the thickness 
right, to use the sociological term for identity, the thickness of identity and the way that other groups feel there's a thickness. Um, And part of that is because American Jews think of themselves only as a religious group and don't understand themselves both as a religion and a people, a tribe in a healthy way. And we are those things. We're we're both of those things. Um, And then the other piece I would say is that the majority of American Jews whether they see themselves this way or whether it's the outside world who has labeled them this way are perceived as being white and privileged and having more socioeconomic ability than others. And many American Jews feel very guilty about that. And, you know, it's like they open their, uh, you know, their cupboard in the morning People say cupboard. They open yeah. <laughs> whatever. Okay, it's they the open word. their cupboard in the morning. I don't know people say it, but like, yes, you open your cupboard. Yes. <laughs> so they open their cupboard in the morning and see all the cereals they just happen to have because they can afford every cereal they want and their kids don't think anything of it and it's mana from heaven, right? right. Whereas the little kid from a different community whose family can't afford every right. cereal. So there, there any is- cereal or any cereal, that's exactly right. There is this inherent built in sense of guilt around that. And I think that also plays into this. And I think many, many young Jews, particularly time of high school, maybe even middle school, but definitely by the time of high school, and for sure, by the time they're in college, have really internalized this issue. Right. And do you think also, I I often think that because we are such a culture and religion of books and words and knowledge that because we put such high premium on it, then if you are not learning that you are a bad Jew, that's yeah. sort of the right. That sort of, we, we've sort of right inculcated ourselves sort of like right, sort of that, that sort of you learn, you read, you know, right. You're, you're, you're in, you're in the mix. And if you're not something, you're doing something wrong. Right. That's so, right. And therefore, you sort of like ident- start to identify with that, right? And you sort of That's like, right. Boom, right? That's right. And I think the the challenge there is, and I would ask, you know, those young Jews who aren't reading whatever the Jewish canon is right. of the moment or whatever text it may be, right. what are they reading, right? What What are they deeply engaged in? And why is that? Because I'm a firm, I, I'm still holding firm that... People are seeking meaning in their life and people are seeking community. And you yeah. know better than I do, we're, we're seeing the loneliest generation we've ever okay. seen, most mental health crises we've ever seen. We're seeing higher suicide rates. We're seeing people um, looking to join extremist organizations. Right. Addiction is, is, is just that, yeah. Exactly. And so I say, how do we kind of help individuals understand that, there is meaning in different communities that are very positive, right? You don't have to go to these extremes to find a community. So what is it within the Jewish community that has felt intimidating or has felt like you don't belong? Because I think you and I both feel very strongly. We want to be as accessible Mm -hmm. to as many people and inclusive to as many people as possible. And They don't have to read every single book that you and I read. I haven't read everything you've read, but you have to, again, be be a say, I want to be part of this and I want to feel a connection to something bigger than me. And you have to have 
a communal approach from the leadership, whoever that is, lay or professional that says, welcome and come with your questions. We are not prejudging you. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, it's funny because I think, right, like as, as always, everything sort of is so close, right? Sort of that what you said before, right, in this sort of positive intersectionality of like, we, st- we have to start with connections, right? We have to start with the personal, interpersonal relationships that we have to build uh, the same way we do for the work, right, for us, right? So we, right, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety or recovery. The opposite of addiction is connection, right? That's sort of Yohan Hari, right? And, and in that sense, the... This is where I think the beauty of the work of that that you do um, relates to things that sort of what we do in, in that sense, sort of that that lesson is the same, right? We can learn from different communities around us about sort of like inter about interdependability and and connection and and personal connection and value through community rather than value through achievement, right? Because I think right so and again part of the Jewish narrative is sort of this as you said, sort of this privilege moving along, this achievement, right? So in, in that sense, I think we we hide those that do not, right? We hide the poor, we hide the derelict, we hide the, the addict, right? The Shonda factor. Mm-hmm. All those people who they don't fit in, right? Because I think Judaism that I grew up with and think a lot of that you grew up as well, like, right, ask us to fit in, right? And we definitely, the Chuba Center, I'm like, fuck fit in, right? I want you to belong. That's right? right. Fitting in means you somehow you have to diminish or expand yourself. Like I, just come as you are. Yeah. Knowledge, unknowledgeable, right? <laughs> like whatever. Like you know, um, and, and even people who just identify as Jewish rather than like are Jewish, right? Because uh, absolutely, this, right. The silly question I think this sort of was was so prevalent back in the sort of late eighties and nineties. Like who is a Jew, right? Me who Yudi. Who cares? <laughs> like it's That's really, right. right? It's really the answer. Like I don't like. Why do you care? That's right. You want to be called a Jew? Be called a Jew. Great. Goodbye. Like that's that's done. You know. Um, that's right. And, and look, there have been some positive movements um, in terms of programs or initiatives to try to say it doesn't matter what Jewish law says if you right. feel a connection. You know, and, and so right. that exists. Unfortunately, you and I also know it's not institutionalized. Right. The opposite has been institutionalized, and it's taking real work by people who are willing to sort of brave that. Uh, frontier to break down some of those barriers, yourself included. Um, You know, I think there is a piece of this where no matter how hard the interpersonal work or how much you've done on the interpersonal work, there are elements of politicization no matter what. And so again, it comes back to that point of, well, you can get slammed by someone, whether it's, you know, a friend or an acquaintance on social media, when they're coming in there, all caps with exclamation points at the end. um, And you may not feel like you can challenge it or expose it or show the hypocrisy of it because you don't want to expose what you may feel you don't know. And I would say one other thing, which is, you know, the zeitgeist, these days, particularly on college campuses, but again, not only, we see it also in certain aspects of politics as well, is there really is a litmus test for defining what makes one progressive. And the tyranny of progressiveness. Yeah. And guess what? Being a Jew and a Jew who supports Israel doesn't really fit in that litmus test. 
And that's very hard then for people who don't have the content, the literacy, or the confidence to engage in that conversation because that requires you to have some courage. It shouldn't, but it does. And so that becomes extremely challenging because there's a huge, uh, there's a huge push or force of herd mentality and herd thinking these days. And I'll tell you, I hear it from high school students when I'm teaching them where they say, they come up to me after I've taught them and they look around the room, their eyes, their eyes kind of darting and they say very quietly, I totally wanted to say this X statement, but I didn't because I know none of my friends would agree with it. And I'm mm. thinking, you're in school. Right. <laughs> like, this is not a crazy idea to have an exchange of thoughts right. around a content area. But the fear is real. Oh, it's very, it's so real. And it is amplified tenfold on steroids when it comes to the college campus. Right. You said before about creating brave spaces, but to be able to do that. But, but, but we also have to be not, not, but there's no, but there. We have to be um, brave about um, standing alone as well. Right. Not even, even if we don't, convince anybody else right so like that's right right so for example i think um i don't know how you feel about um is anti-zionism anti-semitism right is is expressions of anti-zionism anti-semitism right so for me you know i'm able to approach it both as a historian which i feel gives me a sense of um ability to talk about it in a way that many others may not feel as comfortable and i say Before 1948, before the state of Israel existed, anti-Zionism was a position along the spectrum of options for Jews to figure out how they wanted to respond to the emergence of nationalism and modernity in the 20th century, 19th and 20th century. After 1948, if your job, if you feel like Israel has no right to exist, that's anti-Semitism in my book. That is not about criticism of Israeli policy. I'm going to be right. very clear, right? right? You do it as a, as an Israeli. Absolutely. I do it as a Jew. Israel. I've never met a single Israeli who isn't involved in criticizing <laughs> any Israeli government. That is what Jews do. We talked about argumentation. Right. We are expert at I haven't that. met a single Israeli who doesn't have criticism over Israel. Not not a one. Not one. Whether you're in the army or post-army. doesn't army, matter. It does not matter. It doesn't matter if you come from a religious background, a secular background. Right. It does not matter. But that's not what we're talking about. I mean, if that, just like any American, right. right? Have you ever met an American who doesn't have an opinion about America? Of course not. And guess what? The America you're around right. in New York is different than the America in the Midwest and different than right. the America in the South, right? So everyone comes with these different approaches and lenses, but you can do that because you want to, A, show that you're actually invested in this place. Right what I would call what Michael Walter referred to as being a connected critic, right? right? If you can show your connectedness, but you're criticizing it from a place of love, like the prophets, right? all the more so, fine, that's what we want. But if you're criticizing it to tear it down, that's a totally different ballgame. And for me, when I hear, you know, the lecture is, does Israel have a right to exist? Right. Does anyone say, does America have the right to exist? 
let alone some other country that, right. you know, actually has a history of tyranny or oppression. Right. Never. Right. I have never walked into a lecture hall with that question. I can tell you I've walked onto an insane amount of campuses where that is the leading and framing question. So in my mind, anti-Zion, first of all, people don't know what Zionism is either. If you think people don't know what anti-Semitism is, they definitely don't know what Zionism is. And there has to be a real distinction between criticizing policy versus criticizing the exist besides calling for the destruction or, you know, delegitimization of the state. So do do you, so, so what's, What's better? I mean, if they like, do we walk into that lecture, right? And try and have a conversation about and sort of write that conversation? Or do we start like that, that header, right? That lecture, uh, uh, right? Definition shouldn't exist, right? Yeah, so like, right, so, right? That's right. That's like, right. So <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Y- yes, yes, yes. Go ahead. <laughs> it's both, right? Like it's, a, it, it, for me, it's a both because the majority of the people in that room know nothing. That's my assumption. Something, it's the kids who, you know, the roommate who is invested in that conversation, who's ending with exclamation points, convinced his five friends who know nothing about this, but are part of that litmus test of progressivism and said, well, you're for women issues and you're for transgender issues and you're for, you know, race against racism. You should come with me to this, but they don't know anything. Why should we assume that they know anything? Right. So I want to be there. So that I can, A, listen to what's being said, because I actually really believe in hearing from multiple sources. So that's why you listen to CNN and Fox News and Washington Post and New York Times and everything in between. So you go so that you can be more informed about a position and try to really understand the motivation of that position and to be the one who says, excuse me, I have a question. And you do it respectfully and you do it appropriately but you keep asking the question and you keep raising your hand. And then you talk to the five people that you could hear sitting around who don't have a formed, informed or formed position. I think when you see that space completely, it's highly problematic because we know from physics, if you create space, something always has to fill it. Right. So I don't want more bad information or bad ideas to fill it. I'd rather challenge it appropriately. And I think the question Iggy for us is, so how do you get that person to walk in the room to be able to feel confident to ask those questions? And that's really hard. Yeah. And also, and you just spoke about this, of the space, of we create spaces, but like, do you worry about the toxicity of it? Like, right, I'll I'll watch Fox News or whatever. I I started watching um, – <laughs> the convention, the the RNC, right, the Republican convention. I I had to stop. I I just my my soul couldn't take it, right. I watch Fox News and I right my blood pressure starts sort of go up and and I I can't quote unquote and I can't afford it, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, look, I think it's like anything. Um, you eat your vegetables even if you don't want your whole plate to be filled with vegetables, right? right? So you have to do things in doses. Um, and you do it because, you know, it's part of having a healthy, balanced life. So you have to know when, okay, this is not good for me. This is not good for my identity. This is not good for the people around me because it's influencing me in so many different ways, mentally, physically, you know, spiritually, whatever it may be. Um, but I'm reluctant to say, don't expose yourself to positions that you don't feel comfortable with. I mean, listen, I, 
it's very easy, particularly on social media, to live in your own echo chamber. Yes. You know, and that's not healthy. That is not the real world. It just isn't. And I'm wholly convinced that the more that's where, you know, engagement happens versus in real life, um, as we speak through screens, but (laughs) at least least it's still speaking to another human. um, I'm just very nervous that you can walk through the world without having to be exposed to positions that are different than your own. And that's highly problematic. I mean, I, I do not want my children at all to not hear a dissenting perspective. Hmm. I want them to hear something. I want them to be able to come to a different conclusion than I do, but based upon reason and evidence and rationale, not because someone told them and from above and therefore hook, line, and sinker, they took it. What happens to to you when you meet an opinion that sort of makes you feel like, huh, like what 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 do you go through, right? You are in this sort of like uh, uh, always on the sort of this cutting edge of like constantly convincing or needing to be convinced, talking or or right, so like teaching or learning, right? So right, there must be times where you're like, oh, I did not see it this way. I did not think about this, or I did not know this. Like what what goes through your mind in that moment as somebody who has pretty strong opinions and and really sort of like well formed opinions about things. Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, I mean, first, I it depends on the moment. You know, being right. in in person with someone is different than if I'm reading someone, right? Because if I'm reading with someone, I can pause and yell at them on the paper, right. you know, and and probably you also yell at them, them in person, like just for everybody who's <laughs> listening who thinks that sort of like I'm talking to a dainty flower around here, yeah, like, yeah. No, like not not exactly after after the swearing in your head, yes, right, yes. I mean, it also depends who the person is, meaning. Right. You know, are they coming with, you know, a well, a well positioned place that they say, I am, I'm just telling you this is how it is, or are they movable? And not that I think my job is to move them. That's not what I'm saying, but I just want to, it's good to know like who you're dealing with. Right, right. Um, But I would say that overall, for me, when I encounter a really clear perspective that is diametrically opposed to where I am. I really try to understand from where they're coming and really more than anything, I really try to understand what influenced them to make that decision. So I'll give you an example. The very first time I read the article by Tony Jute, um, who was a you know former professor at New York university. And he wrote about Israel being an anachronistic entity and having no right to exist. This is a brilliant scholar. He's right. not someone who doesn't know the information. And all I could do, I mean, I wasn't pleased with it. I don't agree with it. I definitely was yelling at him in my head. But <laughs> I wanted, I was like, who are you? Like, what got you here? What events in the world did you witness and observe from your perch at NYU? And you say, no, this place does not have a right to exist. But Saudi Arabia, no problem, right? And I want to actually, so there is a little bit of psychology. And I'm not as, I don't have that skill set necessarily, but I'm really trying to understand their motivation. Um, I will say I've had a lot harder time and maybe you can shed some insight on this for me. When I have encountered um, individuals who have been part of hate organizations like Mm neo-Nazis who have said that they have reformed, it is very hard for me 
to feel a sense of true trust of what that person is saying. Now, I don't have a relationship with them, so that's definitely part of it. But it is very hard for people to change who they are. And it is very hard to change their ideas about other people and their perspectives. And you have to have an incredibly strong person who says, you know what? I was wrong. I was wrong to hate blacks and Jews. Mm. And I was influenced by the wrong people at the wrong time in my life and didn't have A, B, and C. And so I, and that, if someone can do it, it's incredible, but it is really hard for me to feel like, "Mm, is that real? It's, it's funny because, um, I I would say a couple of things about one, um, is hate like anxiety is free floating and it will attach itself to pretty much random things. That is that sort of one of my one of my uh, concerns and fears about it is that that sort of that part of the hate that I encounter sometimes, right, is that I don't think it has anything to do with me. It's directed at me, so it definitely affects me. But it, many times it has nothing to do with me. Um, it, it's it's a lot of self hate <laughs> in that sense, and I know that sounds very self serving and sort of thing, but it's a lot of self self hate, and we see this a lot in recovery. The second part, which relates to this, is that. Um, I actually don't believe that there is a true self, right? Mm-hmm. I believe that who we are is what we do. Who we are is our actions. Who we are is what we say, what we eat, what we consume, what we write. That's who we are. I don't think that there's this inner self, inner child, inner knowing, known self that's sort of just waiting to find the right text or the right guru or the right, right space to, to do the things. Who you are is the rituals that you have in your life. Who you are is what you do. And because of that, I believe them. So that when you change the circumstance of those people, then the, the, the inner self, if you will, right, sort of changes, quote unquote, because it doesn't really exist. And, and, and in the same way, not to be too naive about it, I think right, sort of kids are not born with hate, right? We learn it, but we learn it by attaching to whatever it is, by, by our families, by our circumstance, like you said, by the things we observed, by our own pains, by our own self-hate. And we objectify the thing around us right and and in that sense um which i think is also related to what we talked about earlier about some of the jew hatred by the jews right clearly you say like you don't hate yourself but you do right but but in that sense right sort of that that um that self-hate is um is part of 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 this internal mechanism of what we call the hole in the soul, right? So, and that's why it will hold on to something else because because it doesn't want to find this, the responsibility in the self. It wants to find responsibility on others, right? Which is which is why I what I find so difficult sometimes with anti-Semitism or any kind of like right, racism that, that it's again right. It's not based on facts, and if we're honest, it's about feelings, right? Um, totally. Right. I, I, I had a conversation with uh, with my son, right, with, with Max um, about um, if you say um, I'm only attracted to I don't know, I, I'm not attracted to Asian people. Right. I'm not attracted to black people. Right. Is that racism? Mm. <laughs> right. You could say, oh, there's 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 a preference there. Right. And you could say like you can't help who you fall in love with, but but you can. 
because I think that that is, again, it's something that's unrational that attaches to something that we project on somebody else. Mm-hmm. Right. So oh, you may say you may not attract them to this, to this particular person, but if you say I will never be attracted, that's a racist statement. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, you also just went from um, recognizing in that example, being attracted to a group versus right. an individual. Right. Right. Who may be from that group. Right. And, and when you, when you, make it about the individual that there are a whole variety of reasons of why you may not be attracted to that individual. They just may not be kind at the end of the day. Right. But, but when you make it about a, a large group and homogenize everyone, that's a whole other ball game because you're assuming that all those traits are the same for everyone. Right. Yes. And to come back to, to the original question, that is that, when we are able to sort of change our actions, I think that the person can change. Yeah. I mean, I think actions do always speak right. much louder than just words. Right. Because I think then it's, we're not looking at the change. Um, I, I think it requires us to then accept the person who's in front of us, which again, I think is very difficult for everybody. But this also, I'm assuming, and again, this is where you are expert and not I, but this is where you are, I can see a clear linkage with issues around addiction, with challenges around right. addiction, right? right? Because right. if someone says, yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing drugs anymore, and yet they're still stealing from whomever right. and buying heroin, right? that's very different than if they're putting in that hard work to make right. that transformation. Right. And back to our tradition, sort of that we in our tradition says that a person who has bowed chuva, a person who has done chuva, a person who has repented and 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 responded and and went back to the higher self, we're not allowed to remind him of their past transaction or her past transgression, and we're not allowed to remind a person who has uh, converted about the past of his non-Jewish lineage, right? That I think we we are we are faced and we are. Um, really uh, challenged by our by our tradition to accept people at face value. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And um, and again, you know, those actions, right, right, right. are right. what make that determination. That's right, right. And I think that's true for 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 what what both of us are doing, right? So, like, you may say, "Oh, but I'm not. I don't hate Jews." You may say, "I'm not anti-Semitic." You may say, "I'm not racist." But if you systematically don't hire people of color, or if you sort of criticize Israel for its existence, or right, if your actions say something else, then your words are hollow. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's when you have to show the absurdity of it. Right. That's the other thing I will just say is that part of um, this this conversation about, you know, how do you actually help people see and put these uh, forms of bigotry and prejudice in conversation with one another? Part of it has to be through really good storytelling. And I'm not exactly sure how to do all of that. And I hope to find the right people to help do some of that. But when I say that, I don't mean just talking. I mean, how do you use the elements of humor and romance and comedy and tragedy to really open up the um, 
the experience for someone. So they begin to understand what it means to be whatever the other group is that you're talking about. And that's, you know, that's what good literature does in many ways. It gives you that it's a window and a mirror, right? It helps you see beyond, but it allows you to reflect upon who you are. And I actually think we have to employ really good storytelling in an authentic way because that's what will help people see within themselves. And it has an emotional impulse. Right. I think, yes, I, I agree with you. I think, right. This is what we call it. What would we call, I call immersive Torah. That is sort of like, right. I don't want to learn about, mm-hmm. I want to ask myself, when was I like Abraham, right? Abraham is a good example, right? So Abraham is right. The father of the nation, the first monotheistic person, right? So like, right. All that Abrahamic religious and all that. Abraham was great. He was brave. He went, right? He left his father, like the whole thing, right? He also pimped his wife twice, right? He also almost killed his son. In fact, some spaces in the Midrash says he did, in fact, kill his son, right? He tried to kill his firstborn son, right? Like because, of, because of his wife, right? So here's a guy, right, who is both. He's a both and. He's the father of a nation, and he's also an asshole. Right. And and I think that that is really when we have to immerse ourselves. When were you asshole, Abraham? And when were you good, Abraham? When were you a leader? And when were you doing things that you weren't doing? Right. So the, the immersive story part is not to focus on, oh, we suffered too. But rather, like, how do I see myself within the stories that we tell, the stories that other people tell? And how can people see themselves in the stories that are my stories, right? My people's stories. Yeah, no, I I fully agree. And I will say that um, for me, it highlights pretty much what I love about Judaism and that there are these contradictions throughout Jewish texts. Mm -hmm. And those contradictions are tenuous, right? They are real tension filled. And these are the people that are put as the prototype of for the people, right? The leaders, the ones who exhibit such moral behavior or have moments of failure of moral behavior. And I actually love to see those moments of failure. And I love to see those moments of the questioning of God's decisions and not feeling as if you can't question God. And I think that is one of the most unique aspects of the Jewish tradition, because not every religious tradition has that. And there's actually a real tendency to ensure that texts and scripture and the word of God is so pure or certain prophets are so pure that it's a, in some ways it's makes it challenging to be able to turn to individuals who have those other belief systems and to be able to say, but look at the models we have in our text. And they say, yes, but our model doesn't question. Whereas in Judaism, it's nonstop. Right. It's Right. I mean, I've said it before, right? This sort of one of my favorite things about Judaism comes from this book I read, uh, The Rabbi's Cat, is that sort of while well, there's uh, in scientific research, whatever, there's the thesis, right? Uh, there is antithesis and then there's synthesis, right? And in Judaism, there's the thesis, right? Which I think is Torah, right? And then there's antithesis, 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 <laughs> antithesis. Antith- <laughs> that we are not concerned with synthesis. That's right. That, that, Synthesis is when you die, both figuratively and physically, right? And I think that sort of we're constantly in this, in this sort of like movement of antithesis of like finding more and more and more and challenging ourselves, right? Yeah. Right. A person who studies his mission a hundred times is not the same as a person who studies his mission a hundred and one times. 
Yeah. Right? You learn something new every time. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting. Just on that note, you know, our we have um, our number three is seven years old. And this summer he got really into Harry Potter first time, like, and he can't read the books all on his own. He needs someone to read to him. I love Harry Potter. And I, know, I, I, know I don't really not, know it that well. Right. Oh. So I don't know it. And my nephews were here for much of this period of the pandemic. Right. And they were the ones who really read to him, which was helpful in that we could read to somebody else. Right. Um, and so I didn't pay attention to the story because I wasn't the one reading it. So he's still, you know, like now on book four or whatever with them reading. But now the youngest wants to read Harry Potter and she definitely can't read it on her own. So I started book one to read to them. And Nadav is listening to the story again. Right. And, you know, he gets excited at different moments because he knows what's going to happen. And he knows how this <laughs> foreshadows what's going to come in right. book three. But he's not telling her, but he's excited. And yesterday he said to me, you know, Ima, I really like that you're reading this book again, number one, and we're starting at the beginning because every time I hear it, I think of something new and how it relates to something that's going to come. And I'm like, buddy, you got it. Like, that's exactly right. right. Those are good parenting moments. Hashtag <laughs> win. But I mean, he gets it. And, yeah. and it's good to be able to turn the same page, right? Over right. and over again. But that, that, I mean, I think that's the mark of, of, of great books. Again, again, I love Harry Potter. I know she's controversial right now. I'm sorry, I, but I read the book a long time ago and I, <laughs> I like them. Um, yes, I think sort of like immersive worlds, right? So like like Potter or Lord of the Rings or the Talmud, whatever, you know, like I think have a certain magic to them that sort of that we learn because we change all the time, right? And, right. And, and, and I think that that's really right at the core of both our work is change. That's right. right? How do we create change? How do we sustain change? How are we brave with change, right? Um, and again, right, sort of to be in this constant sort of flux of not knowing. And, and it's funny, as, as you were talking about thinking about, again, the similarity of the things, the work that we do, right? You, like like me, like recovery, um, like you, like me, like recovery, um, that there is no end, right? So like, right, so like, Right here you are. Right, I'm combating anti-Semitism. I mean, surely, right? You, the, the, right, the, the foundation will close when there's no more anti-Semites in the world. Right. That's but like, right. How, how do you, right? How do you like? For us, we have one day at a time. Right. But like, how do you then uh, articulate real goals, knowing that like you will always lose? That's I mean, not right. to be not to be morose about it, but sort of like, right. That sort of there's no chance that everything you want to do will be done in multiple lifetimes. That's exactly right. So one, I think that says something just about my own DNA. Yeah, I think uh, apparently, <laughs> I, right? We love a really good challenge knowing we'll never <laughs> succeed. So I don't know what that says. Um, it says a lot and it's not all flattering, but, but we'll, <laughs> we'll pretend. I'm sure it's not yeah, flattering. Yeah. I'm sure. Um, for me though, it really is. There are two things. One is, Again, I'm not focused on the haters themselves. Right. And so I do see a real opportunity. And it's a slog. It's not going to happen overnight, as I said to you. But right. I feel like deeply responsible because of who I am and what I do know um, that I have to try to take all of what I have uh, learned and absorbed and thought about 
and figure out how do I make that reach a much larger audience who's never going to touch a single one of the things that I read or never pick up something that I wrote. So, so I really feel like that is real serious work that I feel committed to. The other piece of me is that I really believe in serious education, right? And not education, just sitting in a classroom, but those, whether it's immersive experiences or immersive moments, or just the opportunity for someone to walk away from a conversation and simply recognize, I never thought about it that way. Like that's a win when you can crack that right moment and there's a little bit of a fissure or, you know, you notice that they're starting to open that that's huge. And that doesn't happen every day, but when it happens, I feel that there's a moment to seize. So that's another piece of this. The other piece is I love a good fight. (laughs) Like I love a really good fight. The ones that are worth going to the mats over and putting your name in the way of, you know, like that, I mean, I'm built for that. I love it. And I can't imagine, you know, I can't imagine not doing that. I just can't. The pugilist in in both of us is in that sense. I I mean, I encourage people to Google your name and sort of see the time that Rachel (laughs) decided to take on a rather large university to return a rather large gift because it came from somebody who was uh, not... Um, who was anti-Semite, basically, right? Who was an anti-Semitical yeah. person, and 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 the university, right? So it says like, or people say like, uh, no, you're not going to win this large university. And Rachel's like, just watch me, hold my beer. <laughs> well, you, you know, here's the thing, and, and this is where I will say, talk about a pairing to win. So, you know, my my father um, used to say to us, really at a young age, if we were going to complain about something, it doesn't matter if it was like complain about an issue at school, complain about something with friends or something, you know, happening with the coach during practice or a game, he would say very simply, very calmly, like, what are you going to do about it? It was very simple. And when you hear that enough times, A, it becomes very clear. You need to solve it. It's your problem to solve. And if you're not going to try to figure out what you're going to do about it, stop talking. Right. Like, stop complaining. Stop complaining about it. Now, it doesn't mean that, of course, they weren't supportive to help us think through those challenging moments, but it was the onus was on us. Right. Like they weren't going to the coach for us. Right. They weren't going to call our friend's parent to t- right, which is so much of what happens these days. Yeah. It was very simple. It was like, what are you going to do? So, I mean, Iggy, just to say about like that Harvard situation, I'm a scrubby 22 year old at the time. Right. And I remember calling my dad and telling him what I had learned. And he was like, okay, so what are you going to do? And it was so matter of fact. And I was like, yep, get to the drawing board. What am I going to do? But I mean, that's a game changer. Like that's always in my, I hear him when I'm about to say something, what are you going to do? Would you do it again today? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. It was the right thing to do. I stand by it. And it absolutely has implications for professional, you know, work. (laughs) Um, But I, you know, you know, when something is totally right, and I knew I was right, I may have chosen different tactics, I may have approached things in a different way, maybe, but would I do what the actual fight was? A thousand percent. Mm, Cool. Um, as we're winding down, what since this is a what are success benchmarks for you? What what is what is I guess success 
Um, and I guess the other part of, of for, for, the, for the work that you do, but also what could people do to help you? Yeah, no, I, you know, I'll make a, a shameless plug that no, we, we are on social media, which is where the majority of our work in this first phase will take place because that is where young people are these days. Right. So if you go to Together Beat Hate, on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter, you will see some of the social content that we are beginning to develop and roll out, knowing we're only two and a half weeks into that launch. But it's now part of the public movement, I would say. And it really is about people recognizing that in order to address systemic issues around hatred, you have to do this together. This is not one group's problem, right? Racism is not solely a black or brown people's problem. It is all of our problem. Anti-Semitism, Jew hatred is not solely a Jewish problem, right? right. So, so that's a part of this work. The other, we have a, I'd say a pretty awesome website, togetherbeathate.org and constantly adding resources to that. And then as we start to build out this work, especially after COVID, we can do more of this in-person, on-the-ground engagement with individuals, which is really where we would like to move as well. But it's going to be a process. And, you know, we have to pace ourselves. But I would say that this is, um, no one solved for this, right? It's why these problems still persist. So we don't have a silver bullet. We don't. And also, I would encourage you and your listeners, we are totally interested in having individuals submit their ideas for how they can imagine combating Jew hatred and other forms of hatred in collaboration. Mm -hmm. And we're crowdsourcing and funding ideas. So folks who have ideas, they should feel totally interested and invested in actually submitting those ideas because we want to support out of the box thinking around this. And what do Um, they do that on the website? Yeah, on the website. There's a submit an idea and you just go there and do it. And um, and that's exciting because we're not looking to fund major organizations who have done right. this work. We're looking to fund the grassroots initiatives that have the ability to grow and be right. amplified. Um, so, you know, similar to how we started the conversation, we're going to learn a lot and fail a lot. There is no doubt about it. But through that process, it will help us refine how we create the work that we do. And... I guess haters should just beware because I'm out on the prowl, (laughs) (laughs) right? So you know, absolutely. You haven't met if you haven't met Rachel Fish, you you don't know you're gonna lose this anyway. That's right. That's right. So no, but it's um, look, I I feel blessed that I'm sure you do that. I get to wake up and this is what I get to spend my time thinking about and focused on when. There are so many issues in our world and feelings of such deep politicization and divisiveness that I can think about how do we create a greater sense of shared humanity. Absolutely. That's, and that's, that's what all this is all about. Um, so, yeah, this is a great place to end this. Uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us for another uh, episode of Tattoos and Torah. Again, Rachel Fish, Dr. Rachel Fish with us today. Uh, we'll put all the... Uh, all the social media assets, uh, the Twitter and everything on, uh, on the, uh, on the posts. So you can sort of check that out. Um, you know where we are, um, at the chuvacenter.org, uh, check us out, all the groups we're offering, uh, especially Chuva group on Thursday afternoons, where we sort of find tools of how to lead a life of meaning and how to better ourselves with that. Uh, thank you again. Thank you for joining us. Have a good weekend. We'll see you next week. Thank you.